Renewed in the Spirit of Your Mind is the series. If you've been following online, this is uh, week 19. I know what's wrong with me. 19 weeks. Renewed in the Spirit of Your Mind. Knowing how the life of God gets inside. That's the subtitle. Knowing how the life of God gets inside. The, the, the topic tonight, I've jigged the title around different ways, but it takes a local congregation to renew your mind. It takes a local congregation to renew your mind. The text, I mean, the text we've been in and in and in for so long is uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Interesting phrase. Do not be conformed to this world. Here it is. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the idea that, the idea is just big background that we've been considering are these, that a renewed mind comes from somewhere. It doesn't come from nowhere. I appeal to you, therefore. And the therefore in the first part of verse chapter one, chapter 12, verse one, the therefore refers back to first 11 chapters where Paul has been dealing theologically with the mercy of God, what God has done in Christ, why he needed to do it, what our situation is without Christ what Christ has done on the cross, how his resurrection has changed things, the work of the Spirit in Romans 8. He says, I'm appealing to you on the basis of all of this, the mercies of God. That's what he's been describing in chapters 1 through 11. And he says, you renew your mind with that stuff. So so we're learning right away that the renewed mind isn't isn't something, and I hope this doesn't shock you, it isn't something you can just pray into your head. Prayer is certainly important, but that's not the way you get a renewed mind. You can't just worship after this teaching. We're going to have a worship time. It's very important in the life of a church, as long as you know what it's for. You can't worship a renewed mind into your head. If you try to do that, what you're going to do is just try and work up certain feelings during the worship time, and you're going to equate that with the work of God. And so he's saying, get your head into the mercies of God. Know it. Study it. Think about it. Drill down into it. I appeal to you, therefore, in view of all of those things, don't be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that was one of the big things that, we had been reiterating over and over again. And the second thing we started on last Sunday night online is the call to worship is fundamentally, and I I don't think this is well understood in the North American church. I don't mean this church. I mean the, the North American church. That the call to a renewed mind and a life of worship is fundamentally, fundamentally a corporate call, not an individual call. And I want to take you to the text that we started to look at a little bit last Sunday. It's 1 Corinthians 3, 19 to 17. If you've got a Bible, whether you start it up or open it up or however you do it, 
Paul writes to the church at Corinth. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. He's writing to the church. God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's when Jesus comes, the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Those are the verses everybody wonders about. They're tricky verses. They talk about them. And then these words, which are the ones I want to focus on. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit Capital S, God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Remember, he's just been talking about the church in all those verses. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, Paul says, are that temple. So there it is. 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And what I just mentioned last Sunday night was the way many people misread those verses because they're almost always quoted without the context of the surrounding chapter. And when we read, you are God's temple, God's temple is holy, God's spirit dwells in you, we almost always take Paul to mean that you and I, individually, God's spirit lives in us. And let me say right away, the Bible teaches that. Romans 8 and 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that's certainly a teaching in the Bible. God's spirit comes in. That's what brings regeneration. But hear me. That is not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. What isn't readily apparent in our English New Testaments is is that every time Paul says you, do you not know that you are God's temple, 16, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are God's temple, 17. Every time Paul uses the word you in those two verses, This is just a fact. The you is not singular, it's plural. The you God is talking about isn't Don Horbin. The you he's talking about is Cedarview. The church at Corinth. Paul is referring to that congregation in Corinth, not each individual in that congregation. Paul says that the, it's really important, The corporate congregation is a dwelling place of God's spirit in a way that is 
different from the way each individual is a dwelling place for God's Spirit. So there's this communal necessity in the renewal of the mind. It's, it's not just thinking right, though certainly that's important. You'll get no argument from me. But it's, it's relating right. It's submitting right. It's forgiving right. All of which to say, it's the beginning of spiritual dementia to just beg off the regular, sometimes unexciting, ordinary discipline of meeting with the rest of the local congregation in your local church. Now, if we just study this a little longer, I'm hoping I can make you see how some things start to come together. These verses, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, they explain why in the New Testament, I want to show you this, in the New Testament, to be separated from a local body of believers wasn't treated as just an inconvenience. To be separated from a local body of believers was treated as an accelerated loss of spiritual life. And when you realize that, it helps explain some difficult verses. Look at these. If you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Wow. And you are arrogant, Paul says to the church. Ought you not rather to mourn? This is the whole congregation. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 2. Though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, there are lots of things in that passage, but there's one thing that's too important to miss. What, what we would call today being just kicked out of the congregation, excommunicated, a theological word. What we would look at as a, a, a person who is a, who was in the church and now is forcibly unchurched. Paul says that's, that's the same thing as being turned over to Satan. And here's where people misread it. Please note, it wasn't just this man's immorality that was the turning of him over to Satan. That's not what the text says. The text says it's when he was banned from the local congregation that his life was being turned over to Satan. It wasn't the sexual immorality, sinful as that was. But what turned him over to Satan was he was cut off, forcibly cut off from the rest of the body of Christ. That's just the clear wording of the text. 
So what we need to do is we, we need to say, but why? Why is this automatically so? A person, no, I'm not talking about that situation. A person could be separated from the church and still pray, couldn't he? A person could still be separated from the church and read his or her Bible. He or she could stream all the latest Hillsong, listen to the coolest podcasts. Probably a person on his own could still confess his sin. How, How can it be that separation from the church is somehow deliverance to Satan? I mean, could this sinner not repent without the rest of the congregation at Corinth? He might, but I'll tell you, it's not likely that he would. It's not likely that he would. Because we've already seen from the teaching of many passages in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't just sustain, doesn't easily sustain faith and a soft heart apart from attachment to a local congregation. There's, there's a dwelling of the Spirit in the local church that's different from the dwelling of the Spirit in each individual in the church. So whether by choice, or as in that case, by force, when, when we separate from the community of faith, we separate ourselves from certain particular dimensions of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. That's what happens. This is the New Testament teaching on the importance of church, this church, whatever local church you're a member of, to the sustaining of faith and a renewing mind. It takes a church to renew the mind. That's, that's what I'm maintaining. There is no such thing as solo Christianity. There, there is no such thing, needs to be explained, there is no such thing as personal salvation. If by that, if by that, you, you mean God just works in my heart apart from anything else that he's doing in the body of Christ. Or as our text from 1 Peter chapter 2 stated, if you're not part of the people, then you're probably without mercy. Those seem to be the only two possibilities. Look at, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I sure don't want you just taking my word for this. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race. A race. Note, note the collective imagery. You are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm going to wrap up with that. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, notice, but now you have received mercy. So, so becoming a people, corporate, and receiving mercy go together in Peter's text. They're, they're part of the same parcel. It's the same point Paul makes. When you look at it, this is everywhere in the New Testament. It's amazing that it doesn't get more emphasis. 
The point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12 with his description of the individuals in the church, and he describes them as, he illustrates them as being parts of one body or one church or one congregation. And, and the point, surely, in Paul's image, the point is the parts don't survive unless they're attached to the body, right? I mean, if, if, if you take your eye and remove it from its socket, it doesn't see. And if you take your ear, slice it off the side of your head, it doesn't hear. And if you cut off the fingers of your hand, detached from the body, they don't grasp, they don't hold. That's what, that's what Paul means. The, the parts of the body were never even designed to work unless they're attached. That's, that's why he says, 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. I have my own relationship with Jesus. Thank you very much. Nor the head to the feet. I have no need. I don't need you. And in the illustration Paul gives, it, it's not just a luxury. There's no life unless they're attached. That's the way the parts of the body work. Well, but Pastor Don, God is present everywhere. I mean, Jesus even told that woman at the well, worship wouldn't be tied to Jerusalem or the temple anymore. And that's right. He did. Worship was moving into realms far beyond the Jewish nation and Jewish law and worship. But Jesus wasn't saying, as is so often said today, don't worry, everything you do is worship. Listen, they all knew, all through the Old Testament, that God was present everywhere. But, but why did God say that the tabernacle and then the temple why did he say that these were the places where he dwelt? It wasn't in their homes. Their homes never filled up with smoke as the glory of the Lord fell on them. No, it was, it was the corporate spaces of worship where God revealed himself in special ways. The places where people came with their sacrifices, came to confess their sins, came to gather. What, what point was God trying to make in all of this? Oh, Pastor Don, I just worship wherever I am. Sometimes, oh, I'm on the golf course. I'm on a fishing trip. And I'm just overwhelmed with the greatness and the goodness of God in nature. And that's good. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's not worship. That experience is called inspiration. And people frequently confuse that with worship. Worship happens when I set aside time to respond to God's goodness and faithfulness in creation, in my life, all week long, six days of tasting of God's great goodness, of seeing the heavens declare the glory of God, that I, I just have to, I just have to take a whole day. And I want to be before the Lord with other Christians. It's a different dimension of worship altogether. I'm just thinking how nice it is that 
God made a beautiful lake. I think, I think we've learned, we just say everything we do is worship because we've learned that it's a spiritual way of not coming to church on Sunday. And God really isn't fooled by that. We studied those two points basically last week. I want to look at a third, and we're, we're well into it, so don't panic. Point number three. Only the body, worshiping together, supplies an adequate witness to the presence of Christ in this world. Only the body, worshiping together, supplies an adequate witness to the presence of Christ in this world. So, so this is meant to be, let's talk about our church. It's meant to be the one place on earth where the love of God reigns. There's meant to be this one place on earth where people can say, look, look at the difference Jesus makes in our church. He breaks down all the walls. He makes people who would be enemies friends. He uses our lives to fill others with encouragement and strength. Oh, you might not believe it right now, but I'll show it to you. Just, just come over to City View Community Church on Sunday morning or Sunday night, and you'll, you'll see what heaven's going to be like. Let me show you the way God's kingdom looks right now. Boy, do we lose sight of the importance of this sometimes? Have, have we forgotten this awesome responsibility that we have? Do, do we need this reminder from God's word that we're, we're not just a group? We're not just a club. We're called to reveal and to bear witness to the supernatural inbreaking of God's love and grace and rule in a people, not just in a person. And here's why. Those things I was just talking about? No solitary Christian can bear witness to those things. It's, it's just a fact. It only happens when you're with the church. When the church comes together, Christ's spirit works in a special corporate way. And when he does, two things should happen. And now I'm wrapping up. A, we have a window for seeing what is really in our own hearts in a way that personal prayer and Bible study never will reveal. I used to have a book a long time ago. It was, uh, I don't, I, it's, he, it's not, no, I'm not going to say that because that'll just influence what you read. It was a really nice hardcover bound book with a beautiful picture on the front. It, Charles Swindoll, and it was a devotional book. And on the cover, kind of in the background, color photo, there's this fireplace. And, and then there's a, a little coffee table, and there looks like a mug of, like a latte or something. And the Bible's open, and you're just sort of in this wonderful, warm, glorious place. And the idea is you're just reading and feeding your heart on God's word. And here's my experience. My experience is that you really can't help but feel fairly spiritual when you're all by yourself in a tranquil setting with a cup of coffee 
roaring fireplace on a cold winter night, and there you sit with your Bible, gold leaf edges, maybe some soft Hillsong music in the background. And my goodness, Jesus come because I'm never going to be better than I am right now. And here's the problem with that. The problem with that is there's, there's, there's nothing in that situation that I really have to bounce my life off of. And then you come to church on Sunday and you've been working in children's church, a little group of, I almost said a little snake pit, you know, with a bunch of, bunch of three and four year olds with runny noses climbing all over the place. And you've been doing that for 10 years and you come and do it. And the thought just comes to you. You know what? Nobody's ever once thanked me for doing that. Which shouldn't happen, by the way, but sometimes does. Or you see somebody and, and you know that they've said something about you. And it's easier to feel holy when it's just me and Jesus than when it's me and Jesus and really irritating people like you folk, right? And, and you don't get your way. And you can't have your way because not everybody can get their way. And all of a sudden, there's somebody to forgive that I never had to think about when I was by the fireplace with that beautiful latte and the devotional book. There's, there's something that happens in the body. God will make... God will make sure every good church in Canada, God will make sure you get just enough spiritual abuse to grow spiritually. He'll call you to forgive people you don't want to forgive. Well, that doesn't happen in your personal life. It happens in the body because that's where the people are. There's a dimension of growth and a potential for witnessing the supernatural nature of God's work in my life, I can witness that, bear witness to it in a local church in a way that I can't possibly do it in my own devotional time. First John 4, 7 to 11, beloved. Let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Only the church if God so loved us, we ought to love one another, and only a local church can give you the chance to prove that. Only the local church. If I don't show love, according to John, especially to fellow believers in the body of Christ, it, there's, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it, 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 it's a, I might not be thinking like a Christian at all. Anyone who does not love this isn't me. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. So I have the opportunity in the body of Christ to see into my soul with an honesty that I rarely experience when I'm just by myself with my devotional book. 
I said there were two things. Here's the second thing. Our love for believers is to be so forgiving and merciful and total that it becomes a sign to unbelievers that we are the children of God. I get that in John 13, 35. Jesus is the speaker. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, now hear, what, hear what I'm saying here. Individually, the world can tell what I believe. I can just tell them. Individually, the world can see what I believe. But that's not the complete Christian witness. You need the church so we can show the world not just what I believe, but how the Christian life works. The difference that it makes. The change that it makes in the give and take in God's kingdom. We've often heard it said, I suppose it's true, there'll be no more evangelism, no more missions in heaven. Everybody will be saved. So if you're going to reach the lost, fair enough, do it now. Or we'll do it never. Reaching the lost is the one thing you won't be able to do in heaven. So evangelism, we're told, is the one thing we won't do in heaven. It's kind of true, but it's not the whole truth. Sure enough, this is the only time to reach the lost. I get it. This is also the only time you can do something else for the Lord. This is the only time and place where you can love your enemies because you're not going to have any enemies in heaven. This is the only time and place where you can do it. You will either love them passionately or they'll be lost, but you will have no enemies around the throne of God. And, and that means this, that the only time and place where you can prove that God's mercy dwells in your heart by loving and forgiving everyone, well, this is the only place you can do for your enemies what God has done for you. You, you are saved today only because Father God is an enemy-loving God. You are saved today for the only reason that Father God is an enemy-forgiving God. And he says, we are to demonstrate that before the watching world. You are most, you will never be more like Jesus than when you treat someone who wrongs you with grace and love. You will never be more like Jesus than when you treat someone who wrongs you with grace and love. That's why he puts us in the body of Christ. So we have a chance to grow in Christ-likeness in a way that you never can, just with your personal devotional life. Could it be that people all around this church, could it be that they're waiting to see not just our religious mumbo-jumbo, but the gracious, enemy-loving, transforming love that marks our Heavenly Father 
It's our family identity. So hear it, hear it afresh. The call to worship, the call to a renewed mind is more than just saying your prayers. I'm not belittling that in any way. And it's more than just reading your Bible. It is a corporate call. It is a corporate call. There is no other call from Christ than a corporate call. Attach your life, whatever church you go to, attach your life to a local church like your soul depends on it. Because it just might. It just might. Jesus, bless your truth to our hearts tonight. The people all around us are more precious to our own spiritual growth than we know. Keep us from laziness and help us to treat the church the way a finger treats a hand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.